Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Romans 8.28 is a popular verse. It's one of those verses that we tend to commit to memory. If you don't really remember much else from Romans 8, this is one of those passages that jumps out at you. But there is a problem with being popular. The problem when a a text like this becomes popular, becomes something that, that we all can, if not quote, at least paraphrase, is that that popularity tends to divorce the words from their original context. And sometimes sayings from Scripture become so popular and get quoted out of context so often that they come to mean things that are a little bit different from what they actually mean in their original context. In some cases, they even come to mean the opposite of what they mean in context. So as we look at Romans 8.28... I think it's important to remind ourselves of the context of this verse. It doesn't stand alone in the book. It comes actually at the heart of a paragraph. We've already looked at the first half of that paragraph, and next week we'll look at the second half. And here in the middle, our text is kind of pivoting between those two thoughts. So I want you to hear what this sounds like in context, because it's going to help us understand what this verse is actually saying. So we need to go back all the way to verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So there you see, as we hear this good word, that all things work together for good, it operates in a certain context. It comes after Paul's assurance to us that when in adversity and grief, we literally do not know the words to pray, the Spirit intercedes for us. And then following after come these great words about the plan of salvation, the plan of salvation anchored before the foundation of the world, that ends up with the glorification of those who are in Christ. You can't really understand what Paul is saying in Romans 8, 28 without seeing the the two uh, parts of the puzzle on either side of it. So as we look at this text, there are three things that we're going to try to closely understand. So the verse is pretty simple. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So the first question I want to think about is what things is Paul referring to when he says all things work for good? What things exactly 
does he mean? What things? The second question is, for whom are these things working? Who exactly is Paul talking about here? Who are these words meant to reassure? And lastly, what exactly are these things doing? Like what's actually happening in this promise? So once we've looked at the verse closely and considered those three things, there's one final question that I want to think about, which is why do we need to hear this? These are words of encouragement. Why do we need the encouragement? What is the point of being assured that all things work together for good? What need do these words fulfill? Okay, so we'll look at the three practical questions first, and then at the end, we'll come back to this larger question of what what is the need for this verse? Why do we need to know this? So let's start by just talking about what all things means. The Greek word for all things is panta. If you look on the, the cover of your order of worship, we actually have the phrase for you in Greek, all things work together for good. And then you'll see in Greek, panta sunerge ace agathon. It means the same thing only in Greek. So panta is the word translated as all things. And what you need to understand is what panta means in Greek. And it means all things. Literally. It's, it's a beautiful translation. That is precisely what it means, all things. Which leaves out how many things? No things. Nothing is left out of this statement. Paul says all things work together for good, and there's no reason for us to exclude anything from that category. There there is no subset of things that this doesn't apply to, in other words. All things work together for good. When Paul speaks this way, speaking of all things, this is language that he often uses in talking about the gospel. If you look at Ephesians 1, Verses 10 and 11, Paul talks about God and says, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Not some things, but all things, excluding nothing. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. So the God who works all things according to the counsel of his will assures us that all things work together for good. You see the connection. Back in Ephesians, Paul also says, talking about the gospel, that God has a plan for the fullness of time, and that plan is to unite all things in Christ. All things in Christ. There's a cosmic plan of salvation where what has been separated and broken apart will be restored. There will be a unity in Christ that is brought together by this plan of salvation. So it's big. We're talking about the, the, the big cosmic work of God in this verse. All things which God orders according to his will, all things work together for good, and all things will be brought together in Christ in time. This is big stuff. But there is an immediate context to consider. So all things work together for good, But in our context, some things are particularly on Paul's mind. So all things means everything, but especially the hard things. All things means everything, but especially the hard things. 
Remember our context. We've just been talking about adversities, trials, uh, doubts that buffet us so that in our struggle, we do not know how to form the words. We pray to God and we literally do not know what to ask. It's in that context that Paul comes and says all things work together for good. So he means all things, but especially the hard things. Romans 8.28, in other words, is not first and foremost a statement of, of systematic theology, the way that Ephesians 1 can be read. This is actually encouragement that's being addressed to people who are in the midst of adversity, who need to hear this word. These hard things that we endure, these adversities that we face, we're being told that all things, including these things, work together for good. Through Paul, the Spirit is telling you all things work together for good, especially the hard things. You can understand why he would say something like this, given what we've just been considering the prayer that cannot even form itself, the need that you cannot even put into words. Because when you find yourself in moments like that, where you cannot speak, you know what can speak? The flesh. When you find yourself dismayed in that way, the flesh speaks, and the flesh says, look, you're suffering, you prayed, and literally nothing has changed. You went to God, you asked for deliverance, you asked for help, And nothing has happened. There is an obvious conclusion to draw from this fact, which is that your prayers are not getting through, that God does not hear, or if he hears, he does not care, because you are not a concern of his. That's how the flesh speaks in moments of struggle and adversity. This is the voice that we hear. But the flesh, Paul is saying, The flesh is wrong. When the flesh says these things to you, says that your prayers avail nothing, your sufferings continue, therefore God must not love you, the flesh is lying to you. And Romans 8.28 is the assurance of that. Calvin puts it this way. Though God does not immediately succor his people, he doesn't immediately solve our problems, he yet does not forsake them. For by a wonderful contrivance, he turns those things which seem to be evils in such a way as to promote their salvation. He takes those things which seem to be evil and those very things, the hard things, he takes those things and somehow uses them to promote our salvation, to promote our good. And you think, wow, that's really profound, Paul. Where did you come up with this? Maybe from reading the Old Testament. Right? Maybe from, from, from his knowledge of what God has already said. This is not new. In other words, God has already told us this. The Spirit has already spoken these words. He speaks them through the mouth of Joseph, for example, in Genesis 50, who addresses his really unsupportive brothers who literally sold him into slavery And when he finally gets them into his power, he doesn't do what any of us would do if we were the stars of our own Hollywood movie. And he doesn't seek revenge on his brothers. Instead, he lovingly 
embraces the brothers who betrayed him. And he says to them, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So Joseph is able to look back at the most horrible things that he endured and now see the hand of God in them. It doesn't make the evil not evil. He's not saying, wow, all that evil stuff was actually awesome, and I'm so glad you did it. Congratulations. No, they did evil. They meant evil by it. But God, through what Calvin calls that wonderful contrivance, somehow takes the very evil that they intend and uses it for the good. That's a great mystery in the ways of God. Right? Somehow God has the power to do this so that all things can work together for good. So all things means everything, but especially the hard things the things we're least likely to believe are working together for our good. So all things work together for good, but the second question is, for whom? Who are they working for exactly? Paul answers this question for us. He actually answers it twice over for us. Paul tells us two things about those for whom all things are working together for good. First of all, that they love God. And secondly, that they are called according to his purpose. In other words, the people that he's talking about here are the people that he would call the saints. We've seen already when Paul uses that word, the saints, he's referring to everybody who has faith in Christ. He doesn't mean it the way some people mean it, like the saints or the super Christians. It's, It's all the believers. All of the saints are being referred to here, those who love God and are called according to his purpose. What's interesting, of course, when we talk about those who love God, is that the apostles would tell you that that God's love actually comes first. God's love comes first. John says this in 1 John 4, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. And you might say, okay, great, but... What difference does that make? As long as I love, why do I care what the origins of that love are? Well, the great thing about knowing that we love him because he first loved us is that knowing that turns even our love into evidence of our relationship with him. We're being told if you love him, no matter how imperfectly, no matter how far that love falls short of the ideal, that love is not something that you conjured up yourself That's a love kindled in you because he first loved you. So even the idea that the saints love God is evidence, as the presence of the Holy Spirit is, of God's love for us. And that's important. That love is proof. Now, you might ask yourself, why does Paul add that little phrase at the end of the sentence? He's already told us that For those who love God, all things work together for good. And that sounds great. That's a a wonderful, compact sentence that, that says in a few words a really beautiful and profound thing. And then he adds this this phrase at the end that uh almost feels redundant. Right? He says, for those who are called according to his purpose. And we kind of already knew that that's what he was talking about, that those who love God are called according to his purpose. It kind of goes without saying, if you know your apostle Paul, so why does he specifically add that thought? Why is that important 
to speak about us as called according to his purpose. Well, I think it's for the same reason that it's important to John to say that we love because he first loved us, because there's a certain error that both apostles would like to avoid, which is that there's a kind of uh, meritorious benefit that we receive by loving God. In other words, the saints are the people who love God, and because the saints love God, they earn merit and deserve their salvation. By reminding us that God loved us first, and then reminding us that we're called by him according to his purpose, it becomes much harder to make the mistake of thinking, ah, because I love him, God is rewarding me with salvation. I mean, common sense tells you that, that people get what they deserve. Right? That's the way the world works. You, you get what you deserve. That's basic justice. There are exceptions, of course, but, but generally that's the way we expect things to work. If you do good, you will get good. And if you do evil, you will get evil. We hear this all the time. Whatever you put out into the world, that's what you'll get back. Right? So be positive and be a good person And then blessings will pour down. Karma, basically. Karma. You get what you deserve. This is why every other plan of salvation insists that you can make yourself deserving of salvation. If you think about it, that's what religion offers to people, the plan or the path by which they can make themselves deserving of salvation. What do you need to do? What what tasks Must you perform? What kind of person do you need to be so that you can deserve what you want to get? That's the typical plan of salvation. Because if you don't deserve salvation, you won't get it. So there must be a way to deserve it, to earn it. You love God, he'll love you back. Love God, and he'll save you. But the apostolic gospel never talks that way. It never says Words like that to you. The saints love God, but they love him because he first loved them. They love him because he called them. And it's all his doing, not ours. It's nothing that we've earned. It's nothing that we can congratulate ourselves for. And it's also, and this is more to the point, it's also uh, nothing that, that depends on us for its completion or perfection. Whether or not our salvation comes to fulfillment is not ultimately up to us. It's not ultimately about whether or not we are deserving. So Romans 8.28 is saying, if you love God, then he's called you, and this assurance is for you. If you love him, that's enough. He's called you. And what you're being told here is for you. It is for you that all things work together for good. This is an assurance meant for you. So the third question is, well, what exactly are all things doing? What is this work that's taking place that's meant to be so assuring to us? What is the good that all things work together for exactly? They work together for good, but what is that good? Well, the good is your salvation. The good all things work together for is your salvation. 
this is where, for me, things get very interesting. I quoted from Calvin's commentary on Romans earlier, and there's something that he says about this passage that I think is, is utterly fascinating, but he says it in passing. He says it as an afterthought. He's arguing against uh, another idea, and then just in passing, he throws something in, and you're like, wow, wait a second, say more about that. But he doesn't. He just moves on. So I'm going to say more about what he doesn't say more about. But uh, this is in his commentary on Romans. And and what he's doing here is he's actually taking St. Augustine to task. Because when Augustine writes about Romans 8.28, and he sees all things work together for good, Augustine makes a big deal out of the idea that even our sin works for our good. That, That what Paul is saying here is even the sin that you do is, is used by God for your benefit. Now, Calvin doesn't object to that idea. He says, yeah, that, that's right. All things work together for good. And, and one of the things included in all things are the bad things that you do. So he's not trying to carve out an exception. But he doesn't think that's really the emphasis that Paul is making here. It's true in a general sense that, as he puts it, even the sins of the saints are through the guiding providence of God so far from doing harm to them that, on the contrary, they serve to advance their salvation. He agrees with that, that Augustine says. He just says that's not actually the point here. There's a a more specific point that's being made, and it's, it's not the sins. It's the adversities that we endure that, that are in mind here. All things focuses on the adversities that the saints endure, as we've already seen. But this is the remarkable thing. He says, basically, look, sin is not the focus. Sin is not what this is about, because, of course, the theme of, of this passage is the cross. And then he moves on. And that's, that's the, the, the phrase that kind of blew my mind a little bit is the theme of Romans 8.28 is the cross. You could fairly object, but the cross isn't even mentioned. How can the cross be the theme of a verse if you go back over and, and the word cross isn't even in there? Like, that seems like a stretch. Maybe he means like in a general sense, in the, in the way that we talked about earlier, Bethany pointed out that, that the Bible, although there's many books, it tells one story, and that's the story of salvation, Jesus' work, and that work was done on the cross. So maybe he just means in the sense that the cross is the theme of the Bible, it's also the theme of this passage. But no, I think he means something much more specific than that, that the subject of this passage is the cross, It's true the word cross is not mentioned, but there is another word, purpose. Purpose. We are called, Paul says, according to his purpose. The purpose Paul is referring to is God's purpose of salvation. And the work of salvation was accomplished by Jesus at the cross. That purpose is the plan of salvation and the cross stands for the whole, the whole work of salvation summed up in the cross of Jesus Christ. So indeed, Romans 8.28 is lifting up the cross of Jesus to us. All things work together for our good, even the hard things, because of the cross. So that Romans 8.28 is an assurance to the saints that the work of salvation at the cross is utterly reliable. 
that you can trust in the cross, looking at your struggle, looking at the adversity that you face, it may be natural to wonder whether or not you can trust in the cross, to wonder whether the promise of the cross will be fulfilled in your case or at all. In other words, because of the suffering in your life, you may be doubting the power of the cross. And in Romans 8, 28, the Spirit through Paul is telling you that you can put those doubts to rest. The cross of Jesus Christ is utterly reliable, that because of that work, all things work together for good, including the things that you're using as evidence against your salvation. The fact that you suffer, the fact that life is hard, the fact that you struggle with adversity and that you pray and the adversity does not go away, the very things that cause you to doubt are the things Paul points to here and says, those things work together for your salvation. Calvin puts it this way, all things which happen to the saints are so overruled by God, so ruled over by God, that what the world regards as evil, the issue shows to be good. So God has a purpose the plan of salvation, and all those who are called according to that purpose, the saints love God as a result. And for them, all things in life, even their suffering, work together for good in the sense that they work together to further the salvation of God's people. That's what the Spirit is saying in this verse. And so the only question left is, why do we need to hear it? Why do we need to hear it? Well, you need to hear this because you're going to be tested. You need to know that all things work together for good because life is going to give you plenty of reason to think otherwise. You need to know that God is orchestrating even the hard things to bring about your salvation because life is going to keep telling you just the opposite. When... uh, Lori and I go on road trips. I usually do the driving. It's not because Lori's a bad driver. It's because everyone but me is a bad driver. I don't trust anyone's driving but my own. And when I find myself in the passenger seat, I do this thing that's really annoying to drivers. Uh, You'll know what I'm talking about. It has to do with the handhold that's above the passenger door. I clutch onto it for dear life. I behave in the passenger seat like a person who's at the open door of the airplane about to be pushed out with his parachute, and he's not sure whether it's rigged properly. Right? I'm clinging to that handhold. The slightest turn, the slightest uh, uh, bend in the road, and I'm clutching onto that thing like, like something terrible is about to happen. It really annoys drivers, but it's necessary for my peace of mind. Um, When you think of Romans 8, 28, think of those handholds over the door. Because that's what this verse is. It's a verse to cling to. Like We're being given something here that we can snatch hold of and cling to and be assured by. Have you ever wondered to yourself why they put those handholds in cars? Because I'm not always driving. 
they put them in cars because they're necessary. Because sometimes without it, you would not be able to stabilize yourself. Right? It, it's there for your protection. It's one of those things that exists because it will be needed. And when you see it there, it's a hint. It's a hint that you might sometimes need to hold on. Right? That's what this verse is. All things work together for good is meant to be clung to. And that's why reading the verse out of context isn't enough. Like an inspirational take on the verse isn't quite enough. We do this with with Bible verses sometimes. We we lift them out of context and we make them really uh, uplifting and uh, sometimes at the expense of their original context. Philippians 4.13 is a big one for this. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I've heard that quoted so many times as a motivational, inspirational sentiment. Uh, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You're like, well, but Mark, you can't, you know, run a, I don't even know how fast a mile should be run, but but, uh, but A four-minute mile. You can't run a four-minute mile. And I say to myself, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You can't be an astronaut. Ha! I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I remember in high school, a friend of mine graduated as the, the valedictorian of his class at our Christian school. He was the only student. So he was also the valedictorian. And this was his life verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It sounds so good, but then you go back to Philippians and you read what that's about, and Paul is talking about endurance. He's talking about whether I am sort of brought high or brought low, glorified or humiliated. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Like I can endure every trial. And it's funny that for Paul, even prosperity can be a trial that he needs to endure by the power of Christ. Whatever condition he's in, he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. So you go back and you look at the context, and it means something kind of like the way that we use it, but not exactly. The same thing here in Romans 8.28. It's a little bit different in context. This is a verse often quoted to assure us that if we believe in Christ, we will be happy because everything in life is working together to bless us. And we're encouraged sometimes to look at the bad things that happen and to search for the silver lining and to treat the bad things as if they were good to celebrate in our grief. That's not exactly what Paul is saying in context. In context, Paul is encouraging us to feel the assurance of salvation regardless of the circumstances of our suffering. Because our subjective experience can lead us to doubt. He's pointing us to the objective work of Christ and saying, doubt yourself. Absolutely. Doubt him? Impossible. That's what's going on here. That's what's happening. The verse is not intended to encourage us to search for silver linings or hidden blessings or any of that sort of thing. It's meant to assure us that no matter how bad things seem, God is working all things for your salvation. And you can cling to that. So don't be guilty of failing to draw the obvious conclusion 
from this verse and verses like it. Don't be guilty of failing to draw the obvious conclusion, which is something we do all the time. Don't sing about salvation from sin and then be shocked at the horrible power of sin. Of course it's horrible, and of course it's powerful. If Christ had to die on the cross to solve the problem of sin, then it must be the worst problem that we face. And don't be surprised by that. Don't be guilty of failing to draw the obvious conclusion. Don't put your faith in a suffering Savior and then be shocked when suffering comes into your life. Jesus said that those who revile me will revile you. If we are conformed to the image of Christ, suffering shouldn't come as a surprise to us. Don't fail to draw the obvious conclusion. Don't read about putting on the full armor of God and then be shocked when you're attacked. What did you think armor was for? Why were you, do you think you were given this? Like the handhold above the passenger seat, it's there for a reason. God wouldn't give you armor if he didn't expect you to get beat up. He wants you to endure the hard things. So don't be taken by surprise. Instead, be encouraged, even in adversity. Even in adversity, find encouragement that all things do indeed work together for your salvation. As we approach Christmas, I'm reminded of how much I love the old English tradition of telling ghost stories at Christmas time. You read uh, the ghost stories of M.R. James, for example, who is this English professor of the last century. They're all set around Christmas time. Oftentimes, the ghost story is nestled in a story of a bunch of people at a Christmas party. And they start saying, hey, let's tell stories. And someone says, oh, I've got a story for you. And uh, it's a spooky one. So I've been reading ghost stories. And I was reading uh, Ambrose Bierce, who's an American author from the 1800s, a ghost story of his. It's called A Diagnosis of Death. And uh, you can imagine how, as a crime novelist, that title speaks to me. But there's a telling moment in this story early on. It's quite short. There's this moment where the guy who's going to be the narrator, he's going to tell the story, is uh, around dinner speaking to his friends. So this is the setup scene. And his friends are all scientists. They're doctors. So they're going to be skeptical. He's going to tell them that the supernatural is real, and he has firsthand experience of it. And he's going to tell the story of that experience. And before he can even get the words out, one of his doctor friends says, or basically, perhaps you're insane. He's like, I have firsthand experience of this. And he says, well, maybe it's just your mind that is disturbed. Something like that. And here's the way the narrator replies. He says, thank you. One likes to have an expectation gratified. That is about the reply that I supposed you would have the civility to make which is a very sophisticated burn. He's basically saying, you know, I knew that a closed-minded person like you would immediately assume when I said this that I must be crazy, and by calling me crazy, you have actually confirmed you are as stupid as I thought you were. That's what he's trying to say. Like the, his expectation was gratified, as he said. What he expected worked out. Now, it's not that he's happy that his friends are skeptical, that they don't trust and believe him, but he's gratified to know 
that he understood the situation rightly. So in a weird kind of way, even the insult validates his perception. Do you see what I mean? Like he, he has had his assumptions confirmed by the way that people have reacted. I knew you would say that. Now you have, that just demonstrates that I was right to begin with. Well, I want to say to you that there is a wisdom in having expectations gratified, even hard ones. Even hard ones. If Jesus says to us, if you follow me, you will suffer, you will have to take up your cross and follow me, you will be despised and rejected. If Jesus says that, and then it happens to us, it's not fun and pleasant that it happens, but it is an expectation gratified. It is a confirmation. Jesus said this would be the case, and indeed, it is the case. I can see that what he said was right, so that even in my struggles, even in my adversity, I see that he's been telling me the truth. And if I can trust him on the adversity, I can trust him on the salvation as well. When adversity comes, and it does, it will, you can meet it head on. You can meet that adversity and that suffering head on and say, the Spirit told me you'd be coming. The Spirit warned me that this would happen, and here you are. But the Spirit told me something else as well. That all things work together for good, even you. Even the thing that was meant to harm me, even the evil that was intended to bring me down, even that, the Spirit says, was meant for my good, was meant for my salvation. Those words of assurance are yours to cling to if you love him and are called according to his purpose This is a handhold that is yours to grasp. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast. 